You guys can go ahead. Oh, I'm up loud this morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And I'll have you know, there is plenty of room here in the front. So if anybody wants to slide down here and have a, a better view, it's easier to focus up here. That's one, uh, one benefit of being in the front. At least that's what my wife tells me. Uh, Guys, thanks for, thanks for being here this morning. Before I get started, I just want to uh, make a note on the sermon for last week. Last week, I used this illustration of a dam bursting and Jesus kind of taking the wrath of God that was pent up for us. And what I forgot to say last week is that I first heard that illustration from Elliot Cherry. And I think Elliot first heard it from David Platt. So anyway, just to say there's a lot of borrowing that happens in sermons, but I always want to make sure that I am citing my sources to you guys. So I want to make sure I noted that uh, from last week. Uh, so as you know, if you've been here around the summer, or, or maybe you don't know this if you're new, uh, that this, this summer we've been covering the Apostles' Creed, this statement of faith uh, that has been a part of the kind of the church's history almost from its inception, right? We've talked about how it was used in the second century uh, to baptize new believers, how it was used in the ninth century to educate believers. It's something that we're still using today uh, and is useful for us today really as as a, a document or, or as a collection of sayings that teaches us about the load-bearing walls of the Christian faith. That for each of us, our faith is always growing and, and changing, and as it's being shaped and renovated, what's important for us is that we would remain committed to what is essential in following Jesus. And obviously, our foundation for that is in the scriptures, and the creed is built on the scriptures. It gives shape uh, to how we interpret and see what it means to follow Jesus. And the creed helps us know that if, if we are jettison, jettisoning uh, parts, parts of, uh, of the faith that are, that are in the creed, that we're losing load-bearing walls, the things that help us maintain the structural integrity of what we believe. That we risk our faith becoming misshapen and out of touch with the scriptures themselves. So as we confess the creed like we've been doing this summer, uh, we're grounding ourselves in the historic faith that has marked the church across the centuries. And, and this Sunday, we're going to be talking about three, uh, three lines of the creed. We're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead. So we're going to talk about the ascension, we're going to talk about judgment, and we're going to talk about uh, Christ's session, or that's him seated at the right hand of the Father. And more specifically, the centrality of the ascension, the beauty of judgment, and the peace that comes to us because of Christ's session. So if you're a note taker, those are the three things, okay? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite Savannah to come up. Savannah is going to read uh, our scriptures for us this morning. We have two that we're going to be working through, uh, Acts the first out of Acts 1, and then the second out of Hebrews 10. So it'll be up here on the screen if you, uh, you want to follow along. Yeah. All right, Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you come at this time, restore the, or will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jeru Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Awesome. And this is Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful uh, that you desire to speak to us this morning. Lord, I'm thankful that as we uh, open it up, that we are joining your people uh, and your church from across the ages, Lord, in proclaiming a truth that is good and that is true and has been good and true uh, since the beginning. Would you stir our hearts with that this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is the centrality of the ascension. And the ascension is this, this event in Jesus' life that we read about here in Acts 1. It says in verse 9, and when he had said these things, as Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, I have always wondered, ever since I was a kid reading this, what was that like? I think I... Uh, always kind of imagined it like a balloon, you know, that's filled with helium when you let it go, and it just kind of drifts up. And I always wondered, like, how far into the sky did Jesus go before the clouds took him away? Like, what level of the stratosphere was it? Uh, that's not really the point of this passage, right? Uh, it's not that Jesus moved from one physical space to a different physical space that's in our universe, there's kind of a different frame for us to use as we think about it. And what Jesus did at the ascension is he moved into an entirely different frame of existence. So just wrap your, wrap your mind around that for a minute. Uh, when Tim, Tim Keller talks about this as uh, watching a play unfold, and that what happened essentially at the incarnation is that the playwright wrote himself into the play. So if you imagine the Shakespeare that you studied in high school, right? It'd be as if Shakespeare wrote himself in as a character in the play, but not as any random character, wrote himself in as himself. But that's what happened at the incarnation when Jesus came and put on flesh, as he came and entered this world that he had created. He became one of us. And so the, the incarnation is about Jesus moving from this realm that he had dwelt with the Father from, from before time existed into the universe that you and I inhabit. And the ascension is not about him moving to a different spot uh, on the stage. It's about him returning to the place where he wrote the play to begin with. So it's about him exiting uh, our kind of created universe into the place that he dwelt with the Father before time existed. But that's what's happening at the ascension. He's gone to be with the Father in the place that he dwelt uh, before time existed. 
and science almost gives us a, a way to kind of think about this, physics does, as the universe expands, right? The universe is expanding. What is it expanding into? It's a hard thing for us to imagine. That's kind of what we're talking about, is Jesus exiting the, the universe that we know and inhabit into what is beyond that, where he, where he is with the Father. And then there's this cloud that comes and obscures Jesus. And that, that's not so much a, a, a vanishing trick a, as it is the representation or the expression of God's glory. Like a few weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about the transfiguration. When Jesus is up on the mountain and he, he's interacting with Moses and Elijah, and God speaks out of a cloud. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that cloud throughout scripture is a representation or a picture of God's glory. And so that's what we see in this passage is that God's glory has come. It's covered Jesus as he is taken back to be with the Father. Verse 11 tells us that this is the very same Jesus that walked with his disciples day in and day out. That Jesus was taken up in his physical body. Which this was mind-blowing to me when I first learned about this in seminary or maybe thought about it for, th for the first time. That the ascension means that Jesus Christ, even now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is there in his resurrected body. That for the rest of eternity, Jesus has chosen to put on our, our flesh, to bear it always. And that that's true even now. I think it's easy to, to hear that and think, oh, what interesting facts, right? Okay, I think we've got to move on. Uh, but the creed would direct us, it would say, hey, this is one of the like top four events in Jesus' life, right? What the creed mentions is the incarnation, his death, his suffering, his burial, his descent to hell, uh, his resurrection, and then the ascension. And I, in our kind of theological imaginations, the space we give to the ascension, is just, it's so small, uh, the stock market doesn't close for the day of the ascension, right? It's closed on Christmas, it's closed for Easter, closed for Good Friday, but we don't even know when the ascension is. There's, there's no date that we really are aware of that we choose to celebrate it, at least kind of in our tradition. And so it's easy for us to think that this is kind of just a, a, a footnote that's appended to Jesus' life, but friends, that is not true at all. The ascension, it matters. Have you ever wished that Jesus did not ascend? Like, ever wished that you could be with Jesus uh, bodily, like, here and now in this world? Like, oh, this would be easier, right, if I could see Jesus, touch him, talk to him? And if you've ever felt that, uh, you have good company. The disciples felt that same way. When Jesus talked about leaving this earth, they were terrified. They were distraught. And what Jesus tells them, he tells them this in John 16, 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That because Jesus is in heaven, what he's done is he's sent the Holy Spirit to us. And what the Holy Spirit does now is he manifests Christ's presence to us in every moment of our lives. Think about this. If Jesus would not have ascended, he would still be bound by his body to be in only one place ever. So he could only ever be with one of us at a time. That's how it works to be a human on this earth, right? 
that we would be fighting about who gets to spend holidays with Jesus. Well, you get him for Easter, we get him for Christmas, you know. What's he going to do for Thanksgiving? That would be the reality if Jesus had not ascended, is that he would be physically confined, confined to one location. But because he now sits at the right hand of the Father and has sent us the Holy Spirit, we can say that through the Holy Spirit, he is with us always, even to the very end of the age. That it's Jesus, our ascended Jesus, sitting and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father that allows us to participate in all of the blessings that he has promised us always. That what the ascension means is that Jesus is now enthroned as a king, ruling over his kingdom for the good of his subjects, to whom he is always available. This is not a doctrine that belongs to the periphery of our thought, but at the very center of, of who we are as a church. Here's what verse 11 of Acts 1 tells us. that There were angels at the ascension, and they spoke to the disciples. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go into heaven. that this Jesus who has gone into heaven is going to come back, and he's going to come back in the very same way that you saw him go. The promise here is that Jesus is going to return. It's what we sing about when we sing the song, The Lion and the Lamb. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. We're singing about that day of Christ's return. There's been a whole lot of wild speculation about what that could look like, especially in the last hundred years. If you grew up in the church, maybe you're familiar with the Left Behind books. I know I am, right? It's a very compelling plot. Uh, it's also very intricate. And, and the picture that we get here in Acts is very simple, that Jesus who has gone into heaven is going to return the same way that he came. And that when people tell you, well, that they have a, a special line on when that's going to be, you can know that you can just tune them out immediately. That's impossible. Jesus tells us right here, no one knows the day or the hour. And that actually is, is a, it, it reminds us that uh, we're to be always looking and ready for his return. This return that Jesus talks about frequently, it's a key element, again, of, of, of who we are, of our faith as, as Christians. Jesus talks about it all the time. Paul teaches on it. Peter writes about it. John has visions about it. And at Christ's return, what all of these apostles are telling us, what Jesus himself tells us, is that all of the loose ends of the world will be tied up, that everything will be set straight, everything will be made right. But this is the opposite of the ending of the, of the show Lost. Did any of you watch Lost when it was first out? And the ending, so unsatisfying. You're like, what, the smoke monster, right? What was that about? Why were there polar bears on the island? There's so many questions that were left. If you never watched Lost, there were a lot of questions that were left unanswered, okay, when the show ended. That is not how this world ends. Jesus is telling us, the apostles tell us through scripture, no, there's an end coming, and at that end, everything will be made right. The word for that for this to happen, there, there has to be judgment. But that's what Jesus is coming to bring. 
And maybe you think, whoa, 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 whoa. Aren't we past that? This idea of judgment can strike us as primitive or, or closed-minded. That when we hear the word judgment, what we think of is judgmental. That God kind of needs to get with the times and loosen up a little bit. And that if we were going to look through the Apostles' Creed, uh, this would be the phrase that we would, in our, in our day, this is the phrase that we would clip out. That without it, it becomes way more palatable. And yet the promise of Jesus' return in judgment, it is necessary and it is good that it reflects the character of our ascended Jesus. And what's, what's true about us as people is that we all have a deep longing for justice. That as much as we struggle with the idea of judgment, what, we, what is true about all of us is that we have a deep desire for justice. A longing for it. And I just, the example I, that was coming to mind for me this week to illustrate this, it's, it's, it's intense, but I think it, it really drives us to the heart of why justice is important. And I, I kept thinking about uh, the story of Ahmaud Arbery. This 25-year-old black man who was out on a run in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, in February of 2020, and that while he was out on a run on, any, on a normal day, um, that he was chased down and shot to death, left to die. It's horrible. This man who had done absolutely nothing wrong. And and the, the, three, uh, the three white men who were involved in that stood trial. They faced state charges. They faced federal charges. They were convicted. They were convicted of murder by the state of Georgia, and they were convicted uh, in federal court for a hate crime, a crime that was motivated by racism. And when we look at that guilty verdict, we say, yes, that was necessary that was important. That was, that was good that justice, at least to some degree, was done in this case. And the reality is that we live in a world that is so often full of injustice, where justice is not done. Where sin and where evil goes unpunished. And we cry out, that makes us angry. And what that tells us is that we all have this desire for justice and that that desire for justice is a good thing. And what Jesus promises at his return is that he will bring justice. That he promises to deal with all of the injustice in the world all of the injustice that has ever been. There's this writer, Joshua Butler, he talks about how Jesus is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. That when he comes to establish his kingdom, right? 
kingdom of light and life, as he comes to restore the new heavens and the new earth, what he's doing is he is driving hell out of his creation. That's what judgment does. Judgment separates light from darkness. Judgment doesn't create a new reality. Judgment highlights the reality that is. And the judgment of Jesus is not an up-down situation. Joshua talks about this. It's not up-down. It's, it's pushing evil out. But that's what Jesus' judgment is about. And it's not only a punishment, but it's a setting to rights of the wrongs in the world. And so when we cry out for justice, what we're crying out for is, is, the, is the cry that we read in the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yes. That Jesus' return will be a good thing. And at any time that you are sad because of injustice in the world, that, that what that tells us is that, that we were made again to long for the return of Jesus, for the time when he will set all things right. And what scripture teaches us is that this judgment, this coming, is a judgment that is just and it is equitable. It's a judgment that we will all face one day. What Jesus says about that in Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they've spoken. Every word we've spoken, every act, every thought, every desire will be laid out before our Lord. We'll have to give an account for it that will be judged accordingly. Does that, in, does that induce fear in you at all? It certainly stirs it up in me. And if it, if it doesn't, that's something to think about. And maybe you have a, a too high a view of yourself and your own righteousness. That we all cry for justice and judgment and we cry for it against those people. But when it comes to me, well, you've got to understand, Right? my motives, my situation. When Christ returns, he will have access to all of the facts. And that with all of those facts, what he will do is he will judge justly. It will be a perfect justice, this thing that we long for and yet can terrify us. And that is where the peace that comes from Christ's session is so important. I've got this Jesus who has ascended, who we know is coming back, but what is he doing in the meantime? And what Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, is that when Christ had offered up, a, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That right now, what Jesus is doing is he's He's sitting. He's waiting for the time when his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. He's waiting for the day of judgment. He's ruling and he's reigning. When we talk about his, his session, you can think about when, uh, when you're in a, in a courtroom and uh, you say, all rise, everyone stands up and, and they say, the court is now in session and the judge sits down. 
says, I'm now here to, to, to deal with the matters that are before us. But that's what Jesus has done. He's, he's sat down. He's in session. In Acts uh, 1.8, it tells us that J- Jesus gives the, the authority of the Holy Spirit to his followers. And what that means is Jesus has authority, right, because he's a king, and so he chooses to delegate it. And right now, even now, Jesus has authority. that he's a king. And what Hebrews does is it takes that idea of Jesus sitting in heaven as our king and it also talks about Jesus as our high priest sitting in heaven. And it compares Jesus sitting in heaven with the, with the priests who were active in the service of the temple in the Old Testament. So, so the way that this works is that in the Old Testament temple, every day the priests offered sacrifices. So if you imagine... Uh, being a priest, right? You'd be on your feet all day, moving about the temple, offering sacrifices. And you were offering these sacrifices uh, to cover the sin of God's people, to cover your own sin. To say, we live in a world that is covered with sin. And so these sacrifices are a way of us covering up that sin, of looking toward the day of judgment, knowing that day is coming, and wondering, how do we be made right with God in anticipation of that day? And the sacrifices were the way that in the Old Testament system, people anticipated that. And so if you were a priest, you would go home at the end of your day offering sacrifices and you would sit down just like a person would do, right? Kick off your sandals. <sighs> you did it. But the next day, what would you do? You'd get back up, you'd go stand in the temple all day and you'd offer the sacrifices. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And then the author of Hebrew tells us those sacrifices could never take away sin. They could never deal with the issue of judgment that the, that the sacrifices were a signpost. And what those sacrifices were pointing us toward uh, was the sacrifice of Jesus. That when Christ had offered a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God that what he was declaring by sitting down is that uh, the price had been paid, the sacrifice had been made, there was no more need for any sacrifice. And in doing so, he made his people perfect. In verse 14 of our passage in Hebrews, it says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The word for perfected there uh, comes from the same word that Jesus uttered on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. That Christ's work on your behalf is finished. That when you are found in him, what means so many things, one of the things that it means is you can have peace in judgment. That when all your words, all your thoughts, all your deeds are played back, that when you are held accountable for those things, when we are held accountable for those, those things, what Jesus will say to the Father is, justice has been done here. He will say, my offering covered those sins. What kind of offering could do that? Could, could bear the weight of that. What would be sufficient? The sacrifice that Jesus gave 
was himself. That our reigning king, the judgment bringer, the justice giver, took the weight of our sin on himself. And is even now seated at the right hand of the Father because the penalty has been paid and it is, fi- it is finished. That we have peace with God now and that we have peace with God into eternity. Not because of our ongoing work to make ourselves righteous, but because of his work that is finished. That's good news. What that frees us to do is to now pursue justice in our world. To be, to be justice bringers. Trusting that one day Jesus will, yes, make it all right, and that in the meantime, we get to participate in bringing that kingdom to life even now. And the justice that we participate in is not justice as our world defines it, as one political party defines it, or the other, other political party defines it. No, what we're talking about is justice in the, biblical, in, the, in the biblical sense. And that the scriptures would teach us, how do we understand what it looks like to live in a just world? And that what we are called into then is participating with that justice. To make our community a place of justice. Guys, that is hard work. And it is work in which uh, we will mess up, that we will still sin, that our brokenness uh, will still be worked out. The promise is not that we will do it perfectly, but that even even there, that Jesus' work for us is finished. That for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But as we participate in this work of the kingdom coming, of justice being done, that Jesus in that work is also changing us. That not only is his mission to get the hell out of the world, but he is getting the hell out of us. That yes, his work for us and on our behalf is finished, but he is still doing work in us. That even then, even as Jesus does his work in us, Uh, that we know that we can face judgment with confidence, knowing that it's finished. And I've wondered this week, what will that experience be like? To stand before Jesus uh, and give an account. And what it made me think of was uh, a story in Luke 22. And what's happened at this part of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is in the middle of his trial, kind of the the middle of his journey to the cross. He's been betrayed, he's been arrested, and he's told Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. And Peter says, what does Peter say? Absolutely not, right? Far be it from me. And yet, Over the course of that night, Peter does exactly what he promised he would not do. He begins denying Jesus. And here's what it says in Luke 22, that there's a 
a man who says, certainly this man was also with him. He too is a Galilean. He's talking about Peter. No, no, Peter, Peter, this guy, this guy was a follower of Jesus. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. What do you think Peter saw in Jesus' eyes when they made eye contact in that moment? You think he saw shame? Disappointment? But Jesus is saying to Peter, how could you? That's our, that's our default assumption of what was happening in that moment. And I will tell you, that is not biblical. That what we know about our Jesus is that he is full of grace, he is full of mercy, and he is full of love. And in that moment, when he looks at Peter, what Peter saw in Jesus' eyes that broke him was Jesus' unconditional love for him. He goes out and he weeps. That even then, what he's seeing in Jesus is Jesus' unconditional love for him. that is what our account to Jesus will be like. Is as we see our story for all that it is, as we face the shame that we so often run from in our own lives, that what we will see in our Jesus' eyes is love, unconditional love, full of mercy, full of grace. Can you imagine how healing that will be? that all of the things in our lives that we try to hide, even from ourselves, that Jesus will look at us and know all of them. And that what we will see in that moment is love. There's this guy, Kurt Thompson, he's wrote a book called The Soul of Desire, and he talks about this moment, that as we're having a conversation with Jesus, that what he's doing is he's, he's gonna free us from all, of the, from all of the shame and the guilt that clings so closely to us, and that what we will walk in then into the rest of eternity is the freedom of having those things lifted, that what we will see in our story is the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus woven throughout all of it. And that what we are doing here now as a community is that we are, we are practicing for that day. That as we bring uh, our shame and our guilt to each other, even the ways that we would hurt each other, as we, as we confess those things, as we ask for and receive forgiveness, that what we're doing is, is we're, we're practicing and preparing even for that day. And that we're bringing that day into the future as Jesus uses that, as we walk into the light and Jesus uses that to, to free us uh, from the shame, from the guilt, from the sin that so easily entangles us. We have a Jesus who has ascended, who is even now at the right hand of the Father, and that because of that, he can always be with you. It's true that we have a Jesus who will one day come to the judge the living and the dead, who will set everything in this world right, and that is good news, and it is good news because even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, having paid, having, having brought justice to all of your sin, all of my sin, all of our sins. 
and that we're free to then anticipate that day with the peace and the joy, knowing that what is coming for us is love. And that's the love that is even with us now. So let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, thankful, we're thankful uh, that even now you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, that you are interceding on our behalf, that you are reigning over us, uh, bringing good and blessing into our lives. Lord, we pray that even as we worship, that you'd be calling us into the light and giving us the experience of having our shame, Lord, our guilt uh, lifted off of us, that we would be people who are free uh, to run with that, to pursue uh, your kingdom in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.